0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the 1001 Films Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Gardner, and today I'm going to review the classic film, Touch of Evil, starring Charlton Heston, Janet Leigh, and Orson Welles, also written and directed by Orson Welles. Um, It's an incredible film, and I can't wait to tell you what I think about it, so uh, let's get to it. So I knew nothing about this film going in. I knew um that it had been on a lot of people's top uh top lists, uh best movies ever made, you know, top performances by Orson Welles, um you know, top film noirs and and all of that. Um and I just I just knew that Orson Welles and Charlton Heston and Janet Leigh were in it. Um that it was in black and white. I didn't know anything about the story, about the background about uh the making of this film uh and the only thing that i had honestly before this movie the only thing that i had seen uh that orson wells was in was citizen kane um so i'm trying to i'm working my way into you know his other projects and everything um but uh, this film in particular it was i guess wells had some issues with the studio which he you know besides citizen kane Um, which at the time when it came out, it really wasn't a big hit. It was nominated for best picture, uh, but it did not win. It only since has been, uh, kind of elevated to the status of the greatest film ever made. Um, and is at, you know, the top of the America, it's number one on the American film institutes, top 100 films ever made. And it was on the top, you know, it's in the, the British Film Institute's, uh, top 100. It was number one, but then it got taken over by Vertigo, but that's a completely different episode. I could go into that, but, um, I knew that, um, Orson Welles throughout his career has had issues with the studio, uh, and issues with really getting his true vision across. Um, except for in Citizen Kane, where he was basically handed, the keys to the kingdom and got final cut and final edit and, uh, you know, final say on everything that happened in that film. And it was, that film was completely his own, um, and is due to him, um, the success of that film and the greatness of that film. Um, so when I, I threw this DVD in and I turned it on and there was this scroll of text about how, um about how Orson Welles had trouble with the studio and that they took it out of his hands and they recut it and the and Welles said this is a completely different movie than I was trying to make. Uh, so in 1998 it was re-edited um, to Orson Welles' specifications so the way that he wanted the film to be made. Um, you know, so um, that really set the tone for... Okay, this film is by a guy who had a vision. This film is by a genius who wanted to say something. Who wanted to uh, show us something specific that the studio didn't necessarily want to show us. And that instantly creates a sense of intrigue uh, in me. And I was instantly locked in. um, Even before the the first tracking shot, which is amazing. Um... So, you know, let's just get to it then, like, uh, right from the opening, right after that crawl, they go right into this tracking shot, it's a close-up on this bomb, and the guy turns the, the dial on the bomb, t- you know, it's like a, like one of those kitchen, kitchen timers, you know, where you twist it, and, and, you know, and it sets a timer, and, you know, whatever, use it in your kitchen a lot, or whatever, but it's a, it's an extreme close-up on that, um, on that timer and you see the guy, you don't see his face, you just see him holding this bomb and you see him turn the dial to 3 minutes. And then um you know, then it, it's this incredible tracking shot where you see him put the put the bomb in a car um in the trunk of a car and then the people who own the car get into the car and they, uh, they get in it and they start it up and they start driving around and they're driving around this, this city in Mexico, right? This border town in Mexico. Um, and they're driving past all these people, you know, a, ba- uh, you know, uh, a woman with a stroller and like uh, driving through these crowds and this whole time is complete. It's, you know, the, it really gives you the sense of, of, uh, of tension, of, uh, suspense. It's very Hitchcockian in a way that, um, Alfred Hitchcock said that to create, sus- there's, um, there's a few different ways to create suspense. So Hitchcock said that the audience can be ahead of the characters and what they know, they could be with the characters and know exactly as, the same thing as the characters, or they could be behind the characters or the audience is trying to figure out stuff that the that the characters already know. Um, you know, and this is a perfect example of the audience being ahead of the characters. We know that there's a bomb in the trunk of that car. We know that the timer is set to go off in three minutes. Um, you know, and the whole time, uh, we're going through this tracking shot and they're stopping at intersections and at stop signs or whatever. And like this whole big group of people are walking by, or what you know, whatnot. You are driving past, you know, the secure the border security guards. This whole time, you are thinking, when is this thing gonna blow? And are these people gonna die? And you know, this and that. And it's like, oh, you know, when the car stops, oh, is this when it's gonna explode? When when it comes to the the border security, oh, is this when it's gonna explode? You know, and it just creates that sense of tension, and it's it's perfect. It sets the mood perfectly for this film, um, you know, and you even get little hints where the woman in the car says, do you hear that ticking? What is that ticking noise? Uh, and then they just drive off off screen and then you hear the explosion off screen. So, um, uh, so that tracking shot is, 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 is one of the best tracking shots in movie history, in my opinion. Um, and it's right up there with the tracking shot of, you know, Ray Liotta going into the Copacabana in Goodfellas, um, and I'm sure Martin Scorsese is a uh, is a scholar of film, and I'm sure he was influenced by this tracking shot from Touch of Evil, for him to do that tracking shot in um, in Goodfellas. Um. So, so, right from the start, you really get that. Uh, this movie's going to be suspenseful, it's going to be a mystery, it's, you know, definitely a noir with the trench coats and the, you know, and the detective work and all of that stuff, Um, and there's a a lot of filmmaking techniques uh, like that, that I really like, you know, like the opening tracking shot, like I said, and, you know, there's crane shots, and there's Dutch camera angles, and zoom-ins, and shadows, and, you know, a lot of emphasis on, on darkness and the unknown and like, you know, it's just very noir in that, you know, in that, in that, in that style of, you know, of a mystery. It's a mystery. Um, you know, and, uh, just talking about the performances, I'm going to get into something right now that I know isn't, is going to be an issue for some people that have never seen this movie, and is definitely an issue now in twenty twenty one, and it was not an issue in uh, in nineteen fifty eight, or if it was, it was an extremely small issue. Is that Charlton Heston, um, a white man, is is in brownface playing a Mexican, and there is you know you can you can tell if you know what Charlton Heston looks like, you've seen him in other movies like Ten Commandments and Ben Hur. And then you see him in this movie, his complexion is noticeably darker than it is naturally. You know, he has a mustache and there's really no attempt by him at an accent at all. (coughs) Excuse me. And, you know, they just got this super famous white guy to play a Mexican, which would not fly today in uh, 2021. But, you know, um... His performance is still good. Uh, besides the fact that he. Um, doesn't give any attempt at a, at a Mexican or Spanish accent at all. Uh, there's a few uh, parts where he does speak Spanish. But it's only a few words very briefly. And usually uh, someone else is also trying to talk talk over him. Uh, and Orson Welles. uh interestingly enough, he, his character is a detective, and Charlton Heston's character is also a Mexican detective, so Orson Welles's character is uh, the American detective, Charlton Heston is a Mexican detective, and they're investigating this bombing, um, on this border town, you know, there's some jurisdictional issues, but You know, because the bomb was planted in the car in Mexico, but it blew up in the United States. So, who has jurisdiction over this? (coughs) That's kind of the theme, kind of a theme going throughout this film, that they're battling against each other. But Orson Welles' character, when they first meet at the beginning of the film, uh, he he even says to Charlton Heston, you don't talk like other Mexicans. Um, I just thought that that's literally the funniest line of the movie that as soon as you find out Charlton Heston is playing a Mexican and you hear that he doesn't have an accent, like it's right, it's right there in the front of your mind the whole time you're hearing him talk. And I just, it's just brilliant for, you know, Orson Welles to have this character, a racist, uh, you know, say something racist to a Mexican, but is also acknowledging something that the audience is not gonna overlook is not gonna be able to overlook. Um, so I just I think it's 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 funny, but it's also a brilliant way to address the fact that Charlton Heston is not even attempting to to speak with a with a Mexican accent. Um, <clears throat> but um, you know, so Orson Wells. You know, like I said before, this is, this is his movie through and through, you know, his character is the most interesting, the most complex, you know, he's, he's a detective, you know, he's racist, he's fat, he's self-indulgent, um, you know, there's, it's heavily suggested that he plants evidence to solve crimes, and that the reason that he, um, got so famous, and the reason that he, um, is such a good detective and has such a high conviction rate of the crimes that he investigates is that he has been planting evidence in all these crime scenes to get to these convictions um but at the end he has a hunch that he has no evidence for that he obviously did not plant so i'll let me go back sorry um so at the beginning it is suggested that he, he's fa- that Orson Welles' character is famous for his quote-unquote hunches. That he has hunches, and his hunches are what helps him solve these crimes. And it's suggested throughout the film that these hunches are, um, are not really hunches at all. It's just that he has these hunches because he plants the evidence. Um, and he <coughs> there was one instance where he, it is obviously shown that he plants evidence... Uh, with the dynamite in the shoebox in the bathroom that is obviously planted because before we saw Charlton Heston accidentally knock over the box and the box was empty and then Orson Welles goes in there in the bathroom which like, oh, let me go look around and then all of a sudden there's dynamite in that that shoebox. Charlton Heston calls him on it and he does some more investigating and he finds out that um, all of these other cases that orson orson Welles's character has uh, has had these famous quote unquote hunches on um have potentially planted evidence on them and they're wrongful convictions of innocent people because of uh because of planted evidence um but the brilliance of this film is that you never really know for sure it's left ambiguous because there's a couple lines at the end, and uh there's a hunch that Orson Welles's character has. Right at the end of the film, um, that he doesn't have any evidence for, uh, for himself to know that he obviously didn't plant the evidence himself, but he is also right. So his partner, uh, is recruited by Charlton Heston to wear a wire so that Charlton Heston can get a confession out of Orson Welles's character, um, to, uh, um, what's the word, to confess to uh, planting this evidence uh, in this particular crime with the bomb in the in the trunk of the car and to all the other crimes uh, that he has uh, gotten convictions on. So, and he has a hunch that his partner is wearing this wire. Um, he does hear, Charlton Hesedon is following along behind them, kind of hidden in the shadows or whatever, underneath a bridge, and, you know, he has, he's carrying around this speaker where he can hear the, um, the playback from the microphone uh, that he's recording Orson Welles on. But then when they cross this bridge, uh, Orson Welles hears the echo of his voice through this speaker uh, because Charlton Hess is maybe getting a little too close for comfort uh, while he's following these people. Um, and he has a hunch that, you know, he's being followed and that Charlton Heston is, uh, is, is the one that's following him and that his partner is wearing a wire and that, you know, they're trying to take him down together. And the only evidence he has for that is, uh, the fact that he heard an echo, you know, he could have just been hearing an echo because of the location that uh, that he was in was prone to echoes. Um, but you know, it just, goes to show that his character is paranoid uh, and that, you know, sometimes he has hunches that are correct. Uh, that, you know, he said that he uh, was planting... Ev- uh, his partner confronts him and says that he... Oh, you were planting evidence. Um, and he says, no, I was serving justice. Um, so he doesn't deny planting evidence, but he also doesn't admit to it either. That, he, you know, it's... So what the film is suggesting it's not it's you know uh it's it's left ambiguous um because the kid that he framed with the shoebox uh, the dynamite in the shoebox ends up confessing to the crime uh but even even that is left ambiguous because um you don't know if he was getting pressured from the police officers uh to give a confession or the fact that you know there was the fact that the evidence was planted led to this kid seeing no other way out, and the only way that he could get out was take a plea deal and confess and to have a reduced sentence or whatever. That's all left ambiguous. Um, you know, and it's... That's, that's the brilliance of a film like this, is that it allows the audience to decide for itself what is happening in the film. It doesn't spoon-feed us every little bit of exposition, every little bit, every little detail of what's going on, it leaves some things ambiguous. And that is a, a common theme for most great films, is that it, it's a way of engaging your audience. It's a way of engaging the audience in the story without spoon-feeding them uh, whatever, you know, every little detail. Because then if, if a film does that, then it's not engaging. It's boring. You're just sitting there listening to someone tell you a story. You're not asking questions of yourself. You're not asking questions of the film. You're not, you know, going to talk to your friends about, oh, what do you think was happening when this was going on, or why do you think this character did that? You know, films that spe- spoon feed you exposition and spoon feed you everything that uh, is going on in the movie. Uh, you can't have conversations like that. You can't ask questions of that film because you don't need to because everything is answered. Um, and don't get me wrong, films like that can be entertaining, uh, but when we're talking about the art of film, when we're talking about filmmaking as an art form, as uh, an engaging experience, you, I think you have to leave some things ambiguous if you want to engage your audience. Um, and this film is, uh, is exactly that. It has just the right amount of ambiguity to leave it up to the audience to decide for itself what is going on, even the title of the film, "Touch of Evil," you know, it's based—it's based on uh, I can't remember if it was a novel or a short story called "Bridge of Evil," um, which has allusions to the to the final scene of the film. Um, but just the title, "Touch of Evil," it suggests that there's a there's a little bit of evil in all of this. just a touch, not a lot just a touch, a touch of evil in, um, in the characters, in the institutions, like the, the police and, you know, uh, detectives and government, there's a touch of evil in all of that. There's, um, you know, maybe, maybe some of these people that, uh, that Orson Welles' character planted evidence on, maybe they were guilty, and he just, you know, like Al Pacino and in Insomnia, maybe he just planted a little bit just to kind of help the process along, you know. Um, you know, he said he'd, uh, he never planted evidence on anyone that uh, wasn't going to get convicted anyway. He just planted evidence to, to, you know, to move the process a little faster, to get justice a little faster so he can move on to the next case. Um, you know, and some people might say that's, a touch of evil, just a little bit of evil, um, where his intentions are good, um, you know, ridding the streets of crime and, you know, um, solving cases for the betterment of uh, society, getting criminals off the street, you know, getting closure for families and murder cases uh, and stuff like that. You know, those are noble things to do to want to, you know, have a safe and secure society and stuff like that. And catch criminals that's not not a bad thing in and of itself to want to do but it's the means that you go about it you know could be evil could be nefarious um and I just I just think this film I'm I'm glad I watched it I'm glad I discovered it I'm glad you know I dove deep into it and you know it's going to end up in my rotation of of films that I rewatch periodically because it's just that good you know it's one of those films that has evidence of, um, what's going on throughout the movie. And each, each time you rewatch it, cause even just thinking back about stuff that happens earlier in the film, you know, uh, it was alluding to what was going to happen later. I just didn't realize it at the time. Uh, so I feel like this is going to be one of the movies that, uh, gets better with age, gets better. The more times you rewatch it gets better uh the more you become involved with it and study it and that's definitely true of a lot of films by by Orson Welles you know he is very much the troubled genius of his time um you know and he uh is one of one of the greatest filmmakers of all time you know he he did everything he would act he would direct he would write he would edit you know he would be behind the camera you know he did everything, and he is a filmmaker in the truest sense of the word, and this is, you know, one of his, one of his best films, um, and I really enjoy it, and I really implore you all to watch it. I know that a lot of people these days won't watch a movie simply because it's black and white. My wife is one of those people. She does not like to watch black and white movies, um, but... There are some there are some real gems out there that are black and white that y'all are missing out on because you're you're too uh in your own head about watching a movie that's in black and white. You're too used to seeing things in bright vibrant colors uh with lots of action um looking at you Marvel movies, WandaVision, um you know all of that. Just bright vibrant colors, lots of action, not a lot of story. Story doesn't make sense. Um but Touch of Evil is the exact opposite of that. It's character driven. It's um, it's emotional. It's um, you know it's engaging with its audience. It's left ambiguous and it's not frustratingly ambiguous like some movies are. I know uh, another troubled genius, Stanley Kubrick. Some, all, most of his films, for most people, are frustratingly ambiguous. Um, and I have to agree with some of that. Uh, not all of that. I like uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think I've said before, is my favorite film. Um, and every single thing about that film is ambiguous. There's, there's nothing cut and dried about that film at all. Um, but Touch of Evil has just the right amount of ambiguity to leave you, uh, you know, leaving... I was going to say leaving the theater but you can't go watch this movie in the theater especially now with covid going on still and everything but that leave you thinking after it's over what what was actually going on there you know what actually happened um you know and I think I think it's movies like that that generate discussion and that um really lead you to really examine the art form of filmmaking um and I loved this movie um, I might even re-watch it again today. I'm hyping myself up so much about it that I want to rewatch watch it. Um, so I would definitely suggest that you guys do the same. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I really enjoyed uh, this episode. This has been one of my favorite episodes in a long time to do. Um, don't forget to check me out on Twitter at SMGReviews and on my film blog at 1001filmblog.wordpress.com. Thank you guys again so much for listening, and I will catch you next time.